This episode of Gospel Bound is brought to you by Crossway and the new ESV Bible app. The ESV Bible app is designed to help you engage with God's Word on a deeper level, offering elegant, intuitive features to personalize your study, including multiple audio recordings of the full ESV text, audio playlists, customizable background music, daily reading plans, and more. Download the ESV Bible app on your phone or tablet or visit esv.org to get started. This is Gospel Bound, a podcast from the Gospel Coalition for those searching for resolute hope in an anxious age. Wherever you're listening from, welcome. I'm your host, Colin Hansen, and I'm glad you're here for today's conversation. I know the answer to the question that guides former Tennessee Governor Bill Haslam's new book, Faithful Presence, The Promise and the Peril of Faith in the Public Square, published by Nelson Books. But I don't want to face the consequences of that answer. Governor Haslam asks this, do our political actions match our theology, or has our theology been taken captive to our political beliefs? Well, you you probably know the answer, too. Governor Haslam was known as a problem solver, first as two-term mayor of Knoxville, Tennessee, then as a two-term governor. When he was reelected in 2014, it was the largest margin of victory in any gubernatorial election in state history. He has written a political book that's driven by theology. He sees the image of God as foundational truth that can bridge the gap that most of us despair of ever bridging in our polarized political culture. He says humility is the key to overcoming these differences. When you listen to others and admit your faults, others will be more likely to listen to you. Faithful Presence offers a stirring call to justice and mercy with humility. Governor Haslam writes this, Pursuing justice without mercy will lead only to self-righteousness. Mercy without justice leaves unaddressed many of the inequalities that plague us today. And justice or mercy without humility results in a destructive pride about how just and merciful we are. Governor Haslam believes Christians are uniquely equipped to address the seemingly impossible problems of racism, economic opportunity, equity in education, care of creation, and long-term debt, and he roots his argument explicitly in the person and work of Jesus Christ, his example as well as his sacrifice. As Governor Haslam writes, the story of Jesus coming to live and die is the story of a God of justice who knew we needed mercy. His justice demanded that a price be paid for our rebellion against him. His mercy was not without cost. His mercy meant that in the greatest love story ever told, it was his own son who had to be sacrificed. The only biblical way for us to walk into the public square is the way Jesus walked toward the cross. His motivation was his love for a broken and hurting people. It was not to be proven right or to win an argument or to gain power for himself. Governor Haslam joins me on Gospel Bound to discuss political theology, intolerance, his ideal congregation and why Christians shouldn't give up on politics. Governor Haslam, thank you for joining me on Gospel Bound. Well, thanks. I've been looking forward to the conversation and uh, I appreciate the uh, the good intro there. You, you did a nice job of summarizing. Well, Governor Haslam, what's the biggest difference between when you became governor of Tennessee and now in politics? You, you know, it, it, you hate to, uh, to hit on the easy uh, target, but uh, social media really has changed everything. And uh, I say that in this sense, and it's in my way, it's, it's true in politics. It, it's even dangerously true in the church, right? We, we all know it's easy to go get a lot of likes or a lot of hits by saying that thing that everybody will say, yeah, that's what I think too. 
it's a lot harder to actually go out and solve a problem. Culture today and the way we communicate encourages us to say those things that will get a lot of people clapping for us. It doesn't encourage us to actually solve problems. And when I became governor in 2010, we were kind of on the front edge of that. Uh, Social media wasn't playing nearly the dominant role in society and in politics that it does today. Yeah, certainly we see a lot of those same trends within the church, and we talk about them often here on the Gospel Bound podcast. Why do you think, Governor Haslam, that most Christians don't have a developed political theology beyond a few issues such as abortion, religious freedom, and, and gay marriage? Well, think about it this, this way. Think about if you've been around the church for any portion of your life, you've been to, uh, and say you're in business, you've, you've been to lots of uh, meetings and s- seminars and retreats all focused on, well, here's what it looks like to be uh, a Christian in the business world. Or if you're in a student, like, I mean, there's student ministries galore all talking to us about, here's what it looks like to walk faithfully with Christ as a high school student or college student or whatever you are. We haven't really done that with our politics. Nobody has really said, what's it look like to, to walk faithfully in this world? Like I said, there's a few issues we've engaged on, and the, the churches, I think we, we've engaged in all the wrong ways in politics. We've, we've basically said, here's the Christian position on this issue, but we haven't talked about, here's what it, would, here's what it looks like to act faithfully. Here's what it looks like if, you know, if, if blessed are the meek, if blessed are the merciful, uh, what's, what's that? Mean? What in the world does that mean for us in this world? And my, my sense is, well, because we haven't talked about that, what has happened instead is we've said in politics, these things matter so much. The, the stakes are so high. You know, we have this culture war going on. And if we unilaterally disarm, the other side is going to wipe us out. And if we act like Jesus asked us to like it, it'll feel like we're disarming. And the stakes are too big. But as I say, we don't we don't give ourselves a waiver on other things according to the circumstances. We don't say in business, you need to act ethically unless you're about to go bankrupt, in which case you can do whatever you need to do. Or in your marriage, you should be faithful to your spouse and unless there's a really, really attractive person that works with you, in, in which case we'll give you a waiver. We don't we don't do that. But we've done that in politics. We've said, yeah, we're going to suspend Jesus's teaching here because we're not certain it applies. Well, maybe you've already answered this question, but if you had the power to change just one thing about how Christians engage in politics in the United States today, what would it be? Uh, I would say we should take seriously what the Bible says about how we act in this uh, in this part of our lives as much as we do in our marriages and our child raising and in everything else. It seems a little odd to talk about how we're not discipling in this area when you consider how much time and how much money Christians do actually devote to politics. So why the disconnect? Why is there so much energy and so much attention and so much money given to this topic and yet so little discipleship happening? Yeah, I mean, and I come back and blame us in the church. I mean, right, because we there's just not... We're not forming uh, Christian thinkers uh, for the political sphere. And so Christians engage in the culture as they should, like I said, in campaigns and donating money and oftentimes running themselves, running for office themselves. But we haven't done a good job of 
you know, theology sounds like it's it's too heavy of a word, like, oh, I'm I'm not into theology, I'm into practical Christian living, but that theology is is teaching us how do what how does what we believe impact what we do and who we are. And we just haven't done that um, in the political realm. And the result is we have lives that are disconnected. Our, our public arena lives are disconnected from our, our spiritual lives. And there's just no other place where we say that's okay. What do you see happen to well-intentioned Christian politicians? Because you, you hear a lot about how they're bringing their faith into their politics but politics is a very can be a very cruel master, and it seems like you see a lot of change um, in those politicians. Is there is there something you notice that tends to come in common with people who seem to lose the idealism or even principled nature of their work as they get involved deeper in politics? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's why I talk uh, in so much in the book about humility, but I do it for two reasons. One. God's so strong on humility. It's kind of at the core of the gospel. I always say, if you don't get humility, then you don't get the gospel. You don't get this sense of the kind of Romans 3, 23, all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. And so, you know, God says, you know, it's repeatedly, you know, God's opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That That's the first reason. The second is I've seen what happens in these jobs. Listen, when you're in office, you get responded to in one of two ways. People either say you're garbage, you're trash, you're, you're worse than pond scum. Or you're the greatest thing in the world. And the reality is, you know, we know as believers, neither are true. We're not the greatest in the world. We're sinful, broken people. But we're not pun scum either. You know, we're created in the image of God. Um, but when, when that's all you hear, you tend to say, well, the people are calling me pun scum. I'm going to screen out. And the people are telling me, great, must be right. And you have so many power in other way, so much power in other ways that pretty soon you start thinking that you are all that. And I can't tell you how many people, and you know, I can't. I, I you know, I'm, I'm, was, and am susceptible to it too. Who really lose this idea of, you know, I, I'm called here, so in calling here, I'm going to trust God, and that means I don't have to be out telling everybody how great I am. One of your gubernatorial colleagues here in Alabama, Governor Bentley, he was an example of of this, and I remember I didn't really understand all of the amazing power that would come to a governor. And one of the ways that people talked about Governor Bentley's situation was just how dramatic that shift was for him uh, moving from from what he'd been doing professionally into that role. And if I think if that's what it means to be the governor of Alabama or the governor of Tennessee, then what must that possibly mean to be the president of the United States? And sometimes I wonder, is it even possible to be a healthy human being and be president of the United States? Do you ever wonder that same thing? Well, it's, it's a great question for, for two reasons. One, uh, it takes a certain amount of, of self-confidence to even run for office. Uh, you're from Alabama, so I'll, I'll go ahead and use a football analogy. It's like playing cornerback in football, okay? you got to trust that, hey, I'm guarding this, you know, one of these world-talented uh, wide receivers. I'm out here by myself, and it takes a certain amount of, hopefully it's not ego, but of self-confidence to even run for office, to raise your hand and say, I'm going to go through that vulnerable, visible process. That's part of it. And then second, if you get in office, if you're the president, you know, everywhere you go, you know, you live in behind fences, heck, even as governor, you live in a house behind a fence, you're driven everywhere you go. When you get up to speak, everybody stands to applaud. You know, if you uh, 
no matter what you do, people are treating you special. And one of the things that we should all know is that temptation toward egotism, toward narcissism, whatever it is, A, that's sort of the type of people that it draws toward that are drawn toward politics. And I say that as a person that's, you know, been in office myself. And then second, being in office just makes it worse. You came though from a pretty high profile business position um, within your family as well. So did that help prepare you for the governor's mansion that you already were? I mean, of course you'd been a mayor as well, but what did you see as you were growing up kind of in the spotlight with your family, with your business? How did, how did Christ meet you in those places to be able to prepare you for the scrutiny that would come as the governor? I, I do think it helped. I mean, it helped having, have been in business for a, a number of reasons. Like I said, it came from a family that a lot of people knew. So it was a little, wouldn't, I was used to not being totally anonymous and then had been a mayor. So I think all that just in terms of human preparation helped. I do think at the end of the day, what, what I think makes a bigger difference, I hope, is being recognizing that you're a child of the king and seeing things totally different. And, you know, I don't know why God called, asked me, allowed me to be governor. I don't know why he allowed me to do a lot of the things he's allowed me to do. But being firmly convicted that that's what I was called to do made all that feel really different. Um, not called in terms of being special, but just Hey, for whatever reasons, he gave me the keys to that car at that particular point in time. And my job was to be to faithfully drive that car. This episode of Gospel Bound is brought to you by Crossway and Ray Ortland's new book, The Death of Porn, Men of Integrity Building a World of Nobility. Pornography may seem inescapable, but God can free us from its destructive power. In this book, Ortland writes six personal letters, as from a father to his son, giving hope to men who have been misled by porn into devaluing themselves and others. The death of porn inspires men to come together in new ways to fight the injustice of porn and build a world of nobility for every man and woman for the sake of future generations. Pick up a copy wherever books are sold or visit crossway.org slash plus to find out how you can get 30% off plus a free copy of the ebook. What would you say, Governor Haslam, would be one thing that Christians could do now to prioritize the formational practices of following Jesus over the partisan ideology of today's media and online life, as you alluded to earlier? Yeah, I I think it's it's, it's such a great question. I, I do think it's this. It's that we should approach the public square um, with humility, I would say, number one. Number two, we should realize that the public square is the place where we really can affect change. And if we believe that, you know, that God cares about the world, if we believe he sends his son um, on the just and unjust, the rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous, that we don't really have, I don't think, an alternative just to walk away and say, I'm so over all this politics, you know, a pox on the Republicans and the Democrats, I'm out of here. I don't think that's part of who we're called to be. I think we're called to engage, uh, but we're called to engage with humility. One of the things you write about in Faithful Presence is the struggle for Christians with the switch from feeling as though we had been the home team to becoming the visiting team in American culture. And I would imagine Tennessee, such a such a diverse state, so different in so many different parts of that, of that beautiful state that, that maybe that switch has been especially pronounced in certain parts. 
how would you how, how should Christians adjust to this shift? I mean, do you think there should be a demand that Christians should become the home team again? I'd say if you look biblically, we're, we, we've rarely been the home team, if you will, culturally. Uh, and the church, as you know, has thrived in those times maybe the most when we weren't the home team, when it felt like the culture was against us. Um, and so I think that a couple of thoughts there again. Number one, as we've seen the culture shift, a lot of us have reacted out of fear. We've said, oh, man, you know, it's um, everything from the way our culture looks at sex to what's, you know, is it expected that people go to church on Sunday morning has changed so dramatically from when I grew up in the 60s. Uh, so the, 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 the word to us is, number one, don't ever react out of reacting out of fear is A, it's not biblical and B, it doesn't bring out your best self. The second thing is, is this, you know, the one of the, the verse that just that kind of uh, inspired me to run is out of Jeremiah in Jeremiah 29. And if you remember, the Israelites are being held captive in Babylon. And Jeremiah writes to them. He's still in Jerusalem. He writes to them. And I always tell people, like, if I'm held captive, I hope you write and tell me I'm coming to get you quick. <laughs> uh, but he writes and tells them, hey, get used to it. You're going to be there a while. And he said, you know, he says, plant gardens, build houses, marry your children, have your children, have children. He says, seek the welfare of the place where you have been called for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. And you think about it, if you're there like, whoa, first of all, the place where we've been called, we're, we're being held captive. This is a pretty bad culture that we're under. We're here under um, number one. Uh, and then number two, uh, in its welfare, we'll find our welfare. Well, it seems backwards. Um, but. God is supposed to clearly tell them this, where you are right now is where I've called you. And I think that's a message a lot of us need to hear. It's not, I'm longing for the old days when everybody in my office went to church uh, to God's called me here. What's it look like to be salt and light right here, right now? One of the things you, you talk about in, in Faithful Presence is that Christians seem to suffer from an epidemic of caring too much about politics. You alluded to this earlier, but given all the problems that we see and all of the malformed Christian engagement in politics, why not just give up on the whole political process? I mean, you said that you said God cares about the world and the public square is a way that we, in, we help to enact that love of our neighbors. But I mean, is it worth all the trouble considering all of the problems that we see with how Christians are currently doing it? And I'd go back to that verse in Jeremiah when he says, seek the welfare of the place where you've been called. One of the lessons I learned from being mayor and governor is it makes an incredible difference who leads and who serves uh, more than I thought. And I say that not to say you should elect Republicans or elect Democrats. I mean, I more of you should elect people who truly want to solve problems. And I, I talk to you know, folks all the time and say, well, I'm for this person because their position on this issue. And I say, well, hey, that's that issue is really important to me. But I really want to have people that are there to make a difference instead of just make a point. And it's really easy in politics today to make a point. It's way harder to make a difference. And if you do elect people like that, the, the ways that that can change your community, your state, your country are far bigger than you thought. You, you've mentioned a number of times here humility. One of the things you write about in your book is especially the humility of Christ himself in Philippians 2. How could we, as an electorate, encourage candidates 
to, I mean, and help candidates win who demonstrate that kind of humility? Because it seems pretty counterintuitive right now. It doesn't seem to be the main way that you get ahead in politics right now. You know, the, the verse that you referred to, you know, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility, consider others greater than yourselves. Uh, said no political consultant ever <laughs> uh, and, and never will. Um, but I think part of that is, again, finding those people around who do want to serve for those reasons and engaging to help them. Uh, it, it said that's particularly in today's world where it feels like, you know, the the social social media and the, the way we communicate today is rewarding just the opposite kind of behavior. Here, here's the bottom line, though, that I'd say to folks listening um, to your podcast is this. Maybe it's for times like right now that rather than lamenting that the world has gone bad for us to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Um, when, when he used those verses, I think what Jesus was telling us is, don't get mad at the world when the world goes bad. It's not the meat's fault. If the meat, the meat goes bad, it's the salt's fault. Uh, and then we should be, I guess, uh, humbled and challenged by the next verse. Of, uh, and if the salt has lost its saltiness, it's good for nothing except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. So if we look at the world and say, I can't believe how, you know, out of despair, how horrible things are, where the culture has gone to, we first should look at ourselves because we're the ones that are supposed to keep it from happening. And then if that's true, then how do we do that? How do we actually engage as salt to keep the meat uh, from going bad? One of the things I appreciated you writing about in this book was this wave of intolerance that's taken over so many American universities and now certainly also many corporations as well. Can governors or just ordinary Christians who are listening to this podcast, can they do anything about this wave of intolerance? I think we can. And of course, unfortunately, the intolerance is kind of on both sides, right? I mean, right. From, from the right and from the left. Um, and I think the one thing we can do, it's why I talk in the book so much about the world is becoming more discontented with the fact that everybody is discontent. Uh, I don't know. If that's, my, my English teacher would probably spank me for, for, <laughs> spank my hand for saying that. I'm sure I didn't say that right. But in the midst of that, what's 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 being lost today is this idea of creating the image of God. And if I really do believe the person on the other side of the political argument is creating the image of God, I have to look at him or her in a different way. I can't say, oh, man, they're always every time I drive by, they have a, a yard sign up for the wrong candidate or a bumper sticker on their car for the wrong candidate or um, they're, you know, I, I can't uh, look at them as if they're the enemy. That they're not the other side of the of the political argument is not the enemy. The enemy is a uh, is the the evil one who prowls looking to devour. Uh, and our our well, unfortunately, we as believers have fallen in like just everyone else and said, man, the guy on the other side of the argument that's what's wrong with the world. Uh, when I need to be saying, the person on the other side of the argument is creating the image of God. I know that as somebody who doesn't always get everything right, I might not have this one right. So in humility, I'm going to listen. Uh, it doesn't mean I'm not going to have any convictions. Um, I, I've stolen the phrase. I, now I've stolen it for so long, I can't remember who I stole it from. But we, we should be firm on the inside and soft on the outside. Uh, and we're too much the other way. We're hard on the outside uh, in the argument, but we're, we're soft on the inside in terms of where our convictions are. 
Now, I'm sure you, you've never done this. You've never sat in a, in a congregation in the pews and ever wondered about your ideal church and what you would do as the leader of that church. I'm sure you've never done that before. But what would your, would your ideal congregation, would everybody agree on politics and policies or would there be some disagreement? I would think uh, that ideal congregation would have some disagreement and would have some true diversity, not just in thought, but in background um, and in income and race and everything that we would look a little more like the, the big church, if you will, uh, the global church. And I say that because, A, I think that's the way God designed it. But, B, I get better. I learn when I'm around people who don't see the world exactly the way I do. Um, and I think that's true no matter whether it's a, a discussion about a book or a discussion about uh, the best way to impact things or where you're going to invest your money, whatever it is, I grow and am challenged when I'm around people who see the world a little differently. And I don't know, but I'm betting heaven feels a little like that. Well, let's say, Governor Haslam, you had another term as governor. What's one thing you couldn't accomplish in your eight years that you really wish you could still do? You know, a couple of things come to mind. The first one is this. Uh, one of the things you do as governor is you um, you're involved on the back end of the judicial process in terms of you have the ability to grant clemency or pardons or exonerations. And I, I thought that would be really easy um, to, 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 to come in and weigh in on those on those issues. But it's really hard uh, to, to be just and merciful at the same time. That was one of my observations. But the second was, um, I feel like, quite frankly, we're putting too many people in prison for too long, particularly some very young people. And I think a way to look at judicial and sentencing reform uh, in a thoughtful, I would argue, biblical way would be a place, something we could do. That's one of those issues I didn't really understand until I got near the end of my time because we were doing so many other things. But that, that, would, be one, that would be one of the key ones. And then the second would be we spend a lot of time on public education just because I think it's the biggest chance to change the, the trajectory of people's lives. And we made some headway, but there's still a lot more things we could do. My guest on Gospel Bound has been Governor Haslam, Bill Haslam, author of Faithful Presence, The Promise and the Peril of Faith in the Public Square. Uh, Governor Haslam in Gospel Bound, I have a final three. So we're going to do three last quick questions for you. First question, where do you find calm in the storm? You know, I've been married now for 40 years, and there's a there's a certain beauty that comes with being with a person for a long period of time and going through storms and trials and joys of various kinds. So, you know, propped up in bed next to my wife of 40 plus years talking at the end of the day uh, feels like calm. I like that. I like that. Governor Haslam, where do you find good news today? Oh, boy. The, the easy answer is to say the gospel. I guess that you won't you won't let me pick that one, huh? <laughs> <laughs> it's already in the title of the podcast. Let's branch out a little bit. There we go. Uh, you know, I, I'm repeatedly encouraged. Uh, you know, I know people look out the world and see a lot of discouraging things, but one of the things I was so impressed with as governor is how many people really are serving in a selfless way. And you, we can easily get caught in like how many, uh, you know, selfish people there are, or how many folks who just seem to be about them themselves. But at the end of the day, I was continually amazed that not just when something tragic would happen, but in the everyday life, the way that people were serving, that no, they weren't getting any attention, but they were doing the, the, the hard stuff and, you know, for a long time, the, I guess what Eugene Peterson called a, called a long obedience in the same direction. I just was 
continually encouraged by that. You had a number of opportunities to see that at work just through the tragedies of, of that Nashville endured during your tenure as governor. Many difficult moments there, especially with the flooding. Governor Haslam, what's the last great book you've read? Well, you know, I always have a, I always have a, a, a hard time with that, uh, that question because so many different books uh, come to mind. The last great book, I'm actually, this is kind of great. This is a, a novel called, not a Christian book, called A Long Pedal to the Sea. It's about uh, the Spanish Civil War and the folks who, who lose the war and end up in Chile and the lives over about a 30 or 40 year period. It's just a, a good novel I'm reading right now. Uh, if, if you're asking me to recommend one book that I've read recently, Gentle and Lowly uh, by uh, Dane Ortland, uh, it was a was a really good transformative book for me. Great, great choice, great choice there. My guest on Gospel Bound again has been Governor Bill Haslam, author of Faithful Presence: The Promise and the Peril of Faith in the Public Square. Governor Haslam, thank you for the very encouraging conversation. Well, thanks for having me. And I'm I'm always encouraged by folks like you who are working hard to to make the truth of the gospel uh, real in a lot of different circumstances. So thanks for allowing me to come in. Amen. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Gospel Bound. For more information, including past episodes, transcripts, and to sign up for my newsletter, go to tgc.org slash gospelbound. If you like what you've heard, you may also like my new book written with Sarah Zalstra called Gospelbound, Living with Resolute Hope in an Anxious Age. You can find it wherever books are sold. Mm-hmm.